This is Incoming, a universal basic income podcast. I'm Amanda Hall. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Incoming. I'm still Amanda Hall, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, also known as SP2, studying social policy and data analytics. When we talk about universal basic income or guaranteed income or the safety net in general, those conversations are never just about policy. There are dozens of underlying narratives and beliefs in play, whether we're consciously thinking about them or not. So I talked about this a little bit in episode three when I dove into the associations that Americans make between the safety net and anti-Black stereotypes. And in this episode, I want to bring another layer of subtext to the fore so that we can look at it straight on. I want to talk about the concepts of productivity, work, and value that inform the ways we think about resource distribution. So this statement is arguable, maybe somewhat hopeful, but as I understand it, The purpose of an economy is to distribute goods and services in a way that makes our collective standard of living better than if we each tried to go it alone. But there's contention among theorists about how and why we end up with certain economic systems rather than others. Do they develop and evolve as a result of material conditions or because of ideas, exploitation and revolution or dueling rhetoric? When analyzing capitalism, Karl Marx leaned heavily on materialism, and Max Weber countered with ideology. I personally happen to think that they inextricably feed into each other like so many snakes eating their own tails, but for the sake of argument, let's give Weber a little airtime. So Max Weber wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism in 1905, And even though his phrasing was a little more early 20th century German, uh, I hear echoes of his words in a lot of modern debate about deservedness and worth. So his basic premise was that the dogma of capitalism came out of Puritan ethics, giving the accumulation of money the moral high ground of a divine blessing. The idea was that if you were one of those who was predestined for salvation— you would be someone who was disciplined, hardworking, and financially successful. So wealth that was generated from relentless toil was evidence that God had chosen you to be saved. Sticking with Western theism for a bit longer, a few excerpts from Proverbs draw an interesting relationship between work and material and or spiritual subsistence. So Proverbs 20.13 reads, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. And Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Can't remember the last time I used the word sluggard in a sentence, but anyway. Um, And by the way, there is a lot of stuff in the Bible about helping the poor, but the Bible's long Plenty of verses in there to choose from, whatever you want. So policymakers today tend to draw the line at saying rich people are uniquely blessed by God, at least explicitly. But the secular version of American capitalist rhetoric still worships work and productivity, and it assumes that financial security is an earned and natural result of it. So regardless of your circumstances, you're supposed to be able to 
pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and if you work hard, you will prosper. If this were to be true, the rules of formal logic would dictate that the contrapositive must also be true. So if you have not prospered, then you did not work hard. In Obama's State of the Union address in 2013, he acknowledged that this idealized version of U.S. capitalism might not be completely borne out by reality. He said, quote, It is our unfinished task to restore the basic bargain that built this country, the idea that if you work hard and meet your responsibilities, you can get ahead no matter where you come from, what you look like, or who you love, end quote. So up until now, I have indulged the possibility that this really is, as Obama says, the basic bargain that built this country. A more cynical and or historically minded person might look at this supposed bargain as more of a tactic to rationalize economic oppression and keep privilege in the hands of the powerful few. One could even say this mythology is intended to trick the masses into blaming themselves and each other for their deprivation, rather than those who hoard the vast majority of wealth. So here's a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., quote, We have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, here and abroad, end quote. MLK said that in 1967, but now in 2020, do people still believe that capitalism is fundamentally about hard work and that anyone who works hard can get ahead? Uh, No. (laughs) A Pew Research study found that 70% of Americans say the U.S. economic system unfairly favors the rich, powerful, and politically connected. That 70% is up from 63% in 2018. Meanwhile, less than a third believe that the economy is generally fair. Um, As a side note, party affiliation does make a pretty big difference in these beliefs. Uh, Republicans are split 50-50 on whether the economy is fair, and Democrats overwhelmingly feel it is not. Okay, so most people, when explicitly asked, agree that the U.S. economy isn't fair and it favors the rich and powerful. I'm one of them, just to out myself a little bit. Um, I don't think our economy rewards what some people think it rewards, like hard work and productivity. I find the evidence against that concept pretty compelling. So for instance, the Economic Policy Institute found that productivity grew six times more than wages did between 1979 and 2018. Uh, And also, A lot of very productive and valuable hard work that's traditionally shouldered by women, like caregiving and home management, is not rewarded by the market at all. But even walking upstream a little bit more in the logical river, I also don't grant the premise that subsistence should be a carrot dangled in front of people to compel them to sell their time and bodies in ways the market deems productive, with the stick of starvation right behind if they don't. I find that idea ableist and coercive and antithetical to a truly free way of being. We can do better than installing incentives to work that stick patriotic moralizing through the gaping holes in our flimsy safety net. But even so, 
The canonization of the diligent worker has a moral catchiness that's hard to shake. So I still catch myself tying my self-worth to productivity all the time. It manifests as guilt and shame at a procrastinated assignment or a sick day from work. And guilt and shame are morality responses, not material conditions responses. This idea runs really, really deep. Can we quantify how deep? I took a stab at it. So I wanted to find out how participation in the labor market is related to self-concept. In order to do that, I analyzed some data from the 2017 Transition to Adulthood Supplement to the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. Fair warning, there's a little bit of jargon ahead, but um, between you and me, that's just because my professor might be listening. Hi, Dr. Dixon Roman. On the other hand, if you are someone who's interested in the technical details, I'm also going to link to my methods and results right up in the episode description. So the Transition to Adulthood Survey captures responses from a national probability sample of young adults ages 17 through 28. And in 2017, there were 2,526 participants. I was focused on one survey question in particular, kind of a heartbreaking one, um, which was phrased as follows, quote, Please tell me your level of agreement with the following statement. I certainly feel useless at times. Would you say you strongly disagree, disagree, agree, or strongly agree? Unquote. I wanted to find out if certain life circumstances make someone more or less likely to say they agree or strongly agree. So the ones I chose were whether or not someone was romantically partnered, whether or not they were employed, their age, the number of hours they worked in a typical week. And using logistic regression, I found that only one of these had a statistically significant effect. That was the number of hours worked. It turns out that for every additional hour someone worked in a typical week, their chances of feeling useless at times went down by 1.7%. The statistical models can tell us that this effect probably isn't due to chance, but that's about all they can tell us. I mean, in terms of why this might be, we're kind of on our own. I have a strong suspicion that it's because market-approved productivity is hammered into our psyches as something that reflects deeply on our character and our right to belong. Glorification of work for its own sake, above and beyond any impact it might have on the world, is part of the capitalist mythos in America. In a society with a different concept of work and value, these results might look different. Now, let's put a bow on this episode just in time for the holidays. How does all of this relate to universal basic income? Well, anytime someone calls the government safety net a handout, they're making a moral judgment about recipients based on their, really, our idea of what work and productivity mean. Whether or not this is a ghost of the Protestant conviction that work and wealth is holy, legislating this concept of morality can have devastating effects on people's lives. That's all for episode four of Incoming. And this is the last you'll hear from me until the new year. So I want to wish you a very safe and restorative end to 2020. And until next year, remember, what we take in, so too we share out. Bye.